Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started on the we ain't gonna stop. Oh, she made me feel like a god. That's when it got wheels off. Joe Reyes of San Antonio, Texas, is, full disclosure, an old friend of mine. But he's also such an incredible performer, musician, songwriter, producer, engineer. He's won a Grammy. He's been nominated for other Grammys. He's worked with a lot of people in a lot of different genres from like really obvious kind of Latin stuff, um, Tejano stuff, Conjunto stuff, Freddie Fender, Flaco Jimenez, for instance. <laughs> no big deal. Um, if, if you know who those guys are, you know very big deal. And Joe is just a sweetheart. I mean, he's not just a sweetheart. Clearly, he's also a brilliant talent as well. But he is a sweetheart, and he's a really generous guy with his talent and with his time. He teaches music. He um, he serves as something of a teacher to all of his rock and roll friends. Uh, for years, he's been in the band Buttercup, which has spun off into the band Dimitas, uh, a lot that's a lot of like more artsy pop rock kind of stuff but he does it all and he makes it seem so easy that's so maddening too when you watch him work and he makes it just seem so easy so i think this is um a really sweet useful conversation that you're going to enjoy listening to joe he does have very much an element of the teacher about him uh, you know he did get a degree He'll explain that during the course of this conversation as well. The 10 years he spent getting a degree to sort of satisfy his father's old school belief that everyone should have a degree that they can fall back on. And he could if he wanted. He could go teach beautifully. I mean, who knows? Maybe he may go do that, be a professor rather than just sort of a guitar teacher in addition to all of the engineering and production and performance and songwriting, record making that he does now. Uh, it's a great, it's a great point of view that he brings to Wheels Off, and I'm really grateful he joined me. Please welcome to Wheels Off, Joe Reyes. Welcome to Wheels Off, Joe Reyes. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Oh, it's great to see you, Red. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's an honor. Uh, for the edification of our listeners, where are you logging in from? I'm logging in from my home in San Antonio, Texas. Nice. And I can see you're in the room that's filled with keyboards and guitars and cool art stuff. Yep. 
yeah, my CD collection is kind of off there to the side. And this is the room that, yeah, absolutely all the all the bread gets made. <laughs> nice. But the magic a, happens. Yeah, yeah. And always, you know, since I was little, you know, my bedroom was this place, right? As a kid, yeah. like with my record player and my guitar and my amp and everything was all set up so that as soon as I came home from school, I could put on a record and start playing to it, right? And so that's, that's basically how I taught myself how to play. But oh, yeah, there, there's always been some sort of little lab or some place where you could sort of sequester yourself, right? Because it's kind of alone time that you have to have in order to do it. But yeah. 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 But it's always been fun and it's always been a respite from, you know, the hectic school days when I was in school and then just the, the, <laughs> the struggle to earn a living playing music. Yeah. All that stuff was in that room. It's funny, you you describe it as being something that's so solitary, and yet when I think of you, I always think of you as a great collaborator, someone who has a lot of projects where you work with other people, someone who, um, I I know you're a great teacher, that's one one thing that you've done over the years too, is to teach music, and so those those aren't lonely things. No, no. I think uh, the lonely thing is to sort of recharge, to go out and, and meet the students and the collaborators and, and have, you know, like full of ideas and good attitudes and and have something maybe just in the in the barrel. I don't know, for something, you know, like somebody's always like, you got an idea for something? I'm like, oh, I was working on this riff. And that's what I make my students do, too. Like when we're working, it's like, well, did you write anything over the weekend? Oh, nice. I kind of came up with this riff. I'm like, oh, hey, check this out. Like, play your riff. And I start to play the chords underneath and like, oh, my God, what's happening? And then we can talk about tension and, and how the melodies work over the different chords. The lessons just kind of spawn from from this idea, which is like music is is isn't like this sort of precision thing. It's kind of I don't know. We can kind of mess with it in a way it's pliable, like a like a clay or something like there's yeah. so much room for us to not have to technically be great in order to do something that makes somebody feel something. Um, Which is ironic. Ironic you would say that because you are so technically great. Sorry, go ahead. You said I... (laughs) Thanks, thanks, thanks. Well, it it really preyed on me as a kid. I really wanted to be good. Like, I I really wanted to sound as good as anybody else on my record. So it was was really me heaping that on myself. But I would never heap that on a student or a collaborator or a friend. I have all my friends, you know, and they're always like, oh, man, you play the guitar so well. And I'm like... Yeah, but that riff you came up with, man, I would never come up with that. And the way you, the rhythmic feel you give it, I can't give it that. They're like, oh, and they start to perk up. They realize like all of us have some unique thing that we can give it. And so if we can retain that, our chance of making something unique and beautiful is better. So that's, that's always been my production technique. It's like, Hey, wait, did you mean to do that? Let's, let's do that again. They're like, really? I'm like, yeah, that one that you left off is kind of maybe better. Let's see. And we'll just run off and try that. Yeah. It's the, uh, the style is defined by limitations. So I, like, yeah. I've always felt, for instance, like the old 97s, that's why we're so stylistic, because we have so many limitations. <laughs> well, Joe, so what project are you, or projects, knowing you, are you working on at the moment? And how does well, it light you up? Yeah, there are. Uh, there's a new Buttercup record that's coming out that we recorded in 2014. It's, it's, it's pretty old. Um, wow. It's like in first or second grade, that record. Yeah. <laughs> we did it with Danny Reich up in uh, in Austin when he was still living in Austin before he he moved out to California. And it was a record that, that Eric wrote a bunch of songs right after his dad passed away. And then my dad passed away like about right before we started. And so, so the record is sort of dark. It's only acoustic guitar, bass, and vocals. 
and everything is sort of affected, you know, like to give it like some kind of, I don't know, different texture. But, but yeah, that, that record, uh, we changed the name of the band to Grand Marais, which was the, the little village in northern Minnesota where, um, Eric's family came from Finland or Sweden. He's, he's definitely Scandinavian. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so, so, so that record is finally coming out. And so we just sought some photos. Uh, for promo last week. And yeah, it reminds me, you know, that I've been in, in Buttercup for over 20 years now. And it's been wow. the best part of my career, which was it was took every skill set I had and, and utilized it like writing, arranging, recording, performing, touring, uh, merchandising, you know, cover art, everything, everything is involved in that. And everybody has an equal say in it. Like Odie and Eric are both you know, just we're all equal partners in the band. So it's a different situation than when I was a band leader or a, or a sideman, you know, or somebody hired, you know, to play in a band. And so, yeah, that's been really the thing that sort of all the other little side products I get are sort of either coming from that world. They're, they're coming from Buttercup uh, fans or um, compadres that they, ask, they reach out to me and they're like, oh, hey, man, can you help me with this recording? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So Would right you- now, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was, I was going to say, um, would you mind walking us through, by the way, because for those listening, they may not know this tangled web, this this weird long winding road that led to you being in Buttercup, this band. Oh, right, right. Around. Yeah. Well, if you would have to start from the beginning. <laughs> which yeah. would be, uh, as a kid, I grew up and uh, I got a guitar pretty early, like when I was six or seven. And it made sense. We had a piano and I knew all the strings were inside that box. But I would see Elvis and the Beatles. I'm like, they're not playing the box, man. They're playing this thing with the strings on the outside. I want that. So when I get a guitar and put my fingers and hands on it, I'm like, yeah, this is the one. And so I start picking all that stuff up pretty quick. I joined my first band when I'm a senior in high school. And it's it's just chance. I'm, I'm over at a friend's house. I would take my guitar over to their house and play along with their records, right? Like, hey man, you've got the new sticks or whatever. (laughs) Bring my amp and learn the, instead of borrowing the album, I don't know why I would do that. But one day, a friend of mine was trying to to buy some pot and uh, he's on the phone with the guy and the guy goes, hey, is that a guitar in the background? He's like, yeah, we're, I'm in a band, man. We're looking for a guitar player. And the guy goes here. And he just puts the phone down by my amp and played some riff. And then suddenly this deal is going to become an audition. So yeah, and we drive out, you know, kind of in the the suburbs of San Antonio and these guys are all adults. They're like, (laughs) they're like firemen and insurance salesmen. And I'm like, Oh, weird. And they're in somebody's dad's garage. And I look at the set list that they're playing and I'm like, okay, I know all the songs. Those are all the, you know, big rock songs of the day. They pick something. We play through it. They went, dude, that was great. And I look at the bass player, like, that's not how the baseline goes. And I thought they were going to kill me. Like they're just looking at me, like who's this kid? I go, let me show you how it goes, and, and I show him the baseline. And then we play it again, and it sounds exactly like the song. And they look at me like, "How did you know?" I'm like, "That's just how it goes." They're like, oh, "You're you're in." I'm like, "Okay, cool." They don't have any gigs, so we start playing keg parties and you know things that my friends are throwing around in their yeah. senior year. And suddenly, I go from zero, nobody, a wallflower. To- to this guy that's like dude you were jamming the other night getting my back slapped in the hallway and i was just like you know that guy was pushing me into lockers last month and now (laughs) now and now i'm his best buddy so right away i become sort of cynical about the idea that uh you know music would increase your popularity and give you a better chance at dating people and all that i mean it does (laughs) 
Like, yeah. that's, not, that, that's not what compelled me. It was like teaching that guy the baseline and making it sound better was more important to me. And so, yeah. And so from there, I go from a slew of different bands here in town uh, to one band that actually got signed. Lauren Reyes was the guitar group I was in for a while, this flamenco guitar duo. And so we were on higher octave music. We were nominated for Latin Grammy in 2001. And of course, that was the day of 9 11. I don't know if you remember that. Oh. You were in New York, right? Like, yeah, you were, yeah. You were in the city. Oh my God, that must have been. That's awful. the day that the nominations were announced. Yeah, the, the actual gala for the 2001 uh, Latin Grammys was the night before, where they have it at the Beverly Hills Hilton and oh. celebrating Julio Iglesias. Was, it was only the second year of the Latin Grammys. The first wow. year was Carlos Santana, was the person of the year. So this was Julio Iglesias. And the night before is a gala with everyone, like, like, Alejandro Sanz is there, uh, Arturo Sandoval is the musical director. Um, oh my God, there were so many. Uh, Celia Cruz was there and performed. I got to see her. We made eye contact. It was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I was in a line to go because every all the nominees receive a medal. And so you were in this banquet room, like, you know, getting your photograph with a medal. And they're going alphabetically. So it's R A R E. And I look in front of me and Phil Ramone is standing in front of me. Wow. <laughs> He's tapping me on the shoulder, like, hey, you're Phil Ramone. He's like, yeah, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, my band got nominated for this award. He's like, I go, what'd you do? He's like, then is Shakira. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So, so anyway, so, so that band, uh, basically, like, that's when I leave the band, actually, is, is post. Post Latin Grammys, post 9-11, we're out of our record deal. I'm sort of free, really, for the first time in years. And Serge takes the sabbatical there, the guitarist, and I, I joined Buttercup. Yeah, and that's the beginning of that. And then it's through Buttercup that I meet uh, Salim Narala, right? Our mutual friend. Yep. I meet you, and I meet yep. the rest of the guys in the 97s. Uh, and yeah, and, and everything starts to kind of spread out from there. I start touring with Vanessa Peters in Europe. Uh, I reconnect with an old friend of mine, Walter Salas Humara from the Silos, who I used to be a big fan of in the 90s. And uh, one day he just approached me <laughs> at South by. He's like, you live down here, right? I'm like, yeah. He's like, you want to play some shows with me? I'm like, yeah. So nice. For 10 or 15 years now. So, But all of that stuff was me just kind of saying yes to a bunch of things, right? And just lucking out that, you know, a lot of the projects stuck and that the, the camaraderie, camaraderie and the friendship was held together in some good way. And that continued and that continues on to this day. I just finished those show with those shows with Salim. It was so much fun. And and the other thing too is that, you know, as as we are collaborating with all these different people and trying to use all our different skill sets in, in the best way possible, we meet these people with other amazing skill sets. And so you get to you get to glean a little bit of, of their process. And I think as creative people, that's super important is to be around those people all the time and go, Hey, that's great. Did you just do that? Awesome. Uh, you and I co-wrote a song when Celine was staying with me one time. Uh, he was down here doing some shows in South Texas, and he wanted a guitar lesson. So the guitar lesson was <laughs> some weird little D thing that I was doing. He immediately pulls out his phone. He's like, oh, I got some lyrics to fit those chords. And we, we wrote, did I lose you at I love you? Yeah, and then I sort of walked in and hijacked it. You had a perfectly <laughs> good song. <laughs> I don't know. You came in and like... He goes, I just said it to Rhett. Rhett just said three verses. I'm like, he did? Oh, my God. It was like five minutes. It was so <laughs> And then we sat there and covered up that song. And I think in my mind, I'm like, well, that's the best, right? Like, <laughs> like it was going to be another ordinary morning. You know, we would go get something to eat, and we would go off to the next gig. But there just then, something exciting happened. And so I really thought the world of art was like that, like like surprise and um 
epiphanies happening all the time that gave us a different way to see the world. And, and I knew, you know, that, that that was what was happening. I just couldn't find it in any other discipline. I was okay at science. I remember the science teacher at the high school was like, dude, you can do this work, but you hang out with those guys, man. They're, they're, they're not going anywhere. Why do you want to do this? You're smart. Come on. And I'm like, that's really cool, Mr. Lozano, but they're my friends. And, you know, I like music more than science. He's like, it's all science. And that's all he said, right? And then I thought, is he right? And he is. It's vibrations, right? Har you know, harmonics, frequency levels, decibel levels. This is all science, right? So I became like a little science buff. And I started studying like astrophysics on my own, you know, like in college and just trying to read up on all this stuff. But what that leads you to is more great thinkers, right? Like Richard Feynman or somebody who's just a really good teacher, you know, physics genius, but, but also had this great idea, which I always tell my students and my collaborators, which is he had a big sign in his classroom that said, fail fast. <laughs> yeah. Because, because failure shouldn't be something you're afraid of, especially in the arts. Like in order to stretch yourself out and get to the limit of what you know, you have to be out there on the edge and it's scary and <laughs> you are going to fall and probably, you know, seem foolish maybe. But but nothing happens. Like you just, you're like, yeah, I'm still, I didn't break a bone. Like I just, I just got my feelings hurt. That's okay. I can move through this. And so I tell all my students, I'm like, it's okay. Cause one day you're going to get it. And then you'll never remember it. It's imprinted. Like it's this, you know, emphatic moment when you finally crack the key of whatever the riff was or the right chord over the right melody, all those things sort of are long lasting and they and I think they're sort of hammered into our long term memory at that point and then that's where they'll live. And then every time you hear something you're like, oh yeah, that that turnaround. That's so and so. That's John Bryan. That's that's Amy Mann. Let's say Michael Pitt. Like all the yeah. people all the people that I stole from in the nineties. So in the nineties I was working a lot in Los Angeles. I was working with these couple of different producers, one from Mexico and one from Dallas. And so uh, they would fly me out there to do these, you know, just recording dates. And on days off, I would go down to Largo. I would catch you and I would, <laughs> I would catch <laughs> Elliot Smith and John Bryan and Paul F. Tompkins and Patton Oswalt was there and Amy. And it was like a scene and I, and I couldn't get over what was happening at Largo. And I thought, well, I've got a bunch of pop songs that are kind of doing this. Like, what am I going to do with them? Right. So I hadn't released a solo record yet or anything. No one even really knew I was playing all the instruments and singing on these songs myself. Right. But as soon as these demos start to go out to like my friend Mitch Webb from the Swindles or from Eric and Odie from Buttercup, they're like, dude, these are great. Like, let's record some of these. I'm like, you think? Like, I was really sort of not um, considering myself a songwriter at that point. I was just kind of dabbling. I, I had worked with a bunch of great ones. I was still not quite there, you know, like, like mm, something was kind of missing. And all it was, was splaying my heart open, <laughs> like just grabbing my rib cage and going and really letting real things out. And then, then it got better. Yeah. Then I was able to write, you know, a decent song. And, uh, the, you know, a lot of those are on Buttercup records. I've got three solo records that I did in that time. Uh, it was right when I quit drinking, I remember. Like um, like a lot of people, you know, you're, you're growing up around all that stuff. And it becomes sort of, you know, just regular um, entertainment. And so once I quit drinking, I had all this energy. Um, I was yeah. able to kind of like focus in a way that I hadn't before. And I took all the learning I knew and poured it into these ideas I had. And those would be the first of, you know, decent songs I would begin <laughs> to write that I could show somebody. And they'd be like, oh, all right, cool. 
Um, but yeah, that took a while. It, it did. So, um, but all of this stuff, I think, again, just harkens back to the idea, which is like, if you love something this much, well, there's no way you're going to give it up, right? So you've got to find some avenues, some path that which you can be, you know, keep growing. And and writing and arranging was was definitely helping me grow. And then production work, like helping people make records, because I'd done so many all through the 80s, 90s, and, you know, doing all this production work and studio work. I had all the skill sets. I just started to cobble together the gear and the mics and then just started inviting people over to my tiny apartment and <laughs> we would make records there. And they were just like, are you going to play all the instruments? I'm like, uh-huh. They're not, I mean, you know, it wasn't hard parts. I wasn't like John Bryan or yeah. <laughs> where, oh my God, he can play everything so well. But I was kind of a John Bryan junior, you know, or I don't know, the third. Well, that's <laughs> And that's what Elliot Smith was doing on a lot of his early stuff. He played Absolutely, all- yeah. And, and, and that stuff is amazing, yeah. Yeah. And something about when you're playing all the things, right? You're, it sort of becomes this, every single instrument is, is another voice coming from your soul. Yes, exactly, yeah. And if you've, you know, sat there and listened to records as long as we have, you can hear, you can pick out all these parts, you can sort of switch out. Like it's not a McCartney bass; it's going to be this other kind of bass. Uh-huh. Um, it's going to be oh, it's not going to be tack piano kind of thing. Maybe it's an organ. You know, you're looking for timbres and things like that. It did seem like painting, you know, with sound. And uh, even as a kid, my dad worked for the Texas Employment Commission. That's how he ended up in San Antonio. He's actually from around the Dallas area. Um, all my family from my dad's side were miners in Mexico, and during the revolution, they all fled and found some coal mines near Fort Worth to work. But when the wow. price of natural gas fell, all the mines closed. They all just kind of spread out across uh, North Texas up there. And they ended up in Ellis County um, in Avalon. And so that's where my grandfather became one of the better farmers in the county. All my dad's siblings, and they all went to college after the war. They all went to the war, and then they all got out of college with white-collar jobs. So, yeah. so my dad got a job at Waco, and then he got a degree from Baylor. Uh, and then he moved to San Antonio and that's where I'm born. But, um, but yeah, all of that stuff, uh, it makes you realize you're like, okay, well, you know, my, my parents really did give me this life and the freedom to do what I want. I'm going to do what I want. <laughs> and they were like, really, man, it's not, it's not the safest profession in the world. I'm like, I know, but this is what's going to make me happy. And they're like, okay, well, if that's, if that's what you really must do. And I think you're probably from a family that was like that too, as well. Right. Like a, at a certain point, what are you going to do? You can't control them. You just have to no. let them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but you're coming from people that are not necessarily high functioning, but they're hardworking. Right. Yeah. Like, like my family, like totally like that. My dad, you know, he had a great job with the state, but he had a little hauling business on the side and a dump truck and a pickup and we'd work on weekends. That's amazing. Like, yeah. So at eight or nine years old, my dad, you know, my brother and I are in the pickup truck with my dad and we're going to do these hauling jobs and, you know, we make a little money and we'd sit in the cab afterwards and we'd have a Coke and he might have a beer. And I would just go, is this work? He's like, yeah. I'm like, this isn't that bad. <laughs> so, so right away, your work ethic changes. You're like, oh, well, maybe work isn't anything to be afraid of. I mean, this is his business. As I started working, you know, like busing tables and doing things like that in restaurants, I could see the hierarchy in a place like that. But I also thought to myself, like, man, if I'm going to get good enough, I want to be able to play and earn a living just playing and maybe something else like teaching, you know, something else to supplement that. And that's exactly the was the plan. I mean, I still got my English degree, which took me 
over a decade. It was on the decade plan. Wow. <laughs> All my professors were like, you're back? I'm like, yeah. And sometimes I'd have to go during office hours and tell them like, hey, I got a, a tour coming up in the fall. It's like seven weeks. They're like, well, the semester's 15. So, yeah. so what are you going to do? I'm like, come back in the spring. They're like, all right, well, we'll see you then. <laughs> and they were super sweet. They'd be like, how was the tour? What happened? I'm like, oh, it was cool. We went, I met so-and-so. Um, it was really an interesting time because at that time in the late eighties, I was playing with Michael Morales, who was a polygram artist from, from San Antonio. And he had played all the instruments himself on his record. Roy Thomas Baker produced it, but then he needed to put together a band and I made that audition. Right. So, so as soon as I make the audition, we're out touring, playing, you know, these kind of, uh, in the late eighties, early nineties, there were still a bunch of track acts yeah. and these giant bills, like with 10, you know, bands on a bill and we'd be playing like Daytona beach or something like that. And that's where, you know, that's the first time I'm, I'm meeting like big celebrities. Like to me, the smithereens were huge and I got to meet them. They were so nice. <laughs> Pat Denise was so sweet. Uh, Natalie Cole, I ran into her a little bit cause she had that hit, you know, singing with her dad. Mm -hmm. We finally had the tech where we could do that kind of thing. Right. It was starting to happen. Um, and yeah, and, and that was kind of an interesting time, but it didn't last very long. It was only like a year and a half, two years, and then it was over. And, but, but knowing the Morales brothers, uh, Michael and Ronnie, they were the ones who were already producing their own music. And then they started producing Tejano music, right? So then they start a label, they start a management company, and I'm like their go-to guitar player, bass player for a lot of those records. So I get to meet Flaco Jimenez, Freddie Fender, and all those guys, right? Uh, Doug Som. Uh, and you know, they're all from around here. They're, they're, you know, uh, Freddie's from San Benito in the Valley, but uh, Flaco and Doug are from San Antonio, right? So, so I start to meet the San Antonio guys and I realize like, this place has a sound. Mm -hmm. I never thought about it before, but just like Chicago, Memphis, New Orleans, you know, have these like kind of sounds, right? San Antonio has a sound. It's just conjunto music. It's, it's, it's this weird mix of Norteño music and I don't know, like bluesy things, improvisations and things like that. So, so as I get closer to that, this project comes up in the two thousands. Uh, Freddie wants to make a solo record, right? So he comes up from Corpus. We have the meeting. He's playing all the songs he had written and they're kind of like those wasted days, wasted night songs. They're great. But then he sang a mariachi song. He's like, oh, I used to sing these when I was a kid. And he sings one. And everybody in the room just went, we, I said it first though. I said, we have to do a whole album of those songs. Yeah. And that's the one that won the Grammy. Yeah. That's amazing. So that little meeting. Right. And then there were moments, you know, where, uh, you know, he was sick at the time he needed a kidney transplant. So he wasn't in the studio all the time with us. A lot of times we were creating the tracks and he would just come in and sing. But there were rubato intros where he and I had to play off each other, right? Like timing wise, I'd play a chord, he'd sing, I'd wait, I'd play another chord. And those moments were me going back to when I was like watching him on Hee Haw. When yeah. I was like, and remembering telling my dad, like, that dude looks like Uncle Eddie. Who's he? He's like, he's from around here. I'm like, wow, some guy from around here is on national TV singing this big hit. Really? And there I was across, you know, just a few feet from him. And, and he's got that great voice on some of the writeouts, right on some of the tracks that we were working on uh the mic would still be on right the track would be fading mm -hmm. and he'd be there and like nobody can fucking touch me man <laughs> like he would just <laughs> have you ever done that <laughs> you just went man listen to me like it was crazy and i looked at ronnie like hmm, he's got something there man it's true he really does sound unique and and when he did get a good take, he was really proud of it. And I thought, oh, that's sweet. 
And yeah, that was an amazing experience. Like the whole thing about, because I'd just been to the Latin Grammys, right? So the next year is when I, we get nominated for that Grammy. And I'm thinking, oh, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going to another award show and having that happen. So I didn't go. And that was when Mike called me and said, we won. I'm like, we won what? He's like, the Grammy. I'm like, no way. Best Latin pop album. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm like, wild. So, you know, a few months later, the statue comes in the mail. And it freaked me out, man. Like, again, you know, we do this because we love it. We meet so many great people as, on their journeys. It's more the journey, really, to me, as opposed to like these these events. So when I got it, I had it on my mantle for about a week, and I just went, "Oh, I, I can't take this." <laughs> I put it all back up, and I drove over. Well, actually, I walked because I had already bought my house. I, I bought a house close to my dad to keep an eye on him, and so I went over with this box and went, "Hey, man, this is for you." He's like, "What is it?" And he opens it. He's like, "What? Your Grammy?" I'm like, "Yeah, you're gonna have a lot more fun with this thing than me." He's like, "Really? Yeah, this isn't." This isn't why I play. I mean, this is for you. This is for you helping me. Like, none of this would have happened had you not believed in me and, and like, you know, gave me money for strings when I was a kid and, and didn't dissuade me from this idea, which was like, if you work hard, you can do anything you want. And so, yeah, so he had it till he passed away. So I've got it back. Wow. And it's still it's still fun for clients, you know, who come by the house to record to see it. They're like, oh, can I see the Grammy? <laughs> like, of course you want a photo. They all get to, like, pose with it. And then that way, it's fun. Right. It's like, it's like, oh, yeah, it's a bit. But there's a studio here in town. Gilbert, Gilbert Velasquez is another amazing Tejano um, producer. He's got more Grammys than any studio in Texas. Wow. So 17 or something like that now. And they're all in this big rack. I'm like, you're going to need a bigger rack. Dude. <laughs> like, I know. And he's great. He's another fantastic <laughs> musician. But, you know, I'm just one of many people in this in this scene down here in South Texas that that have a bunch of awards like that. It's a small category, I think, is the deal. It's kind of a niche thing. But but still to be honored to, to see the thing that everybody, you know, lauds is kind of interesting. But it's not the end all be all. The end all be all is, you know, helping my friend Mitch last week playing some songs from his sister's band in the 60s. Or talking to you today, thinking like, I never thought this would happen. I love the old 97s. I'm like, now we get to speak? It's like it's like a miracle, yeah. I can't ever take that for granted. So so everything about my career has really been, you know, working hard and showing up on time and making sure my guitar is in tune. Most of that. Wow. <laughs> but it's luck. But, it, but it's been really lucky to meet a bunch of people. Uh, lucky to be able to say yes to most of those projects because, you know, I've basically just done this. Um, and then just, you know, when those opportunities arise, being present and just doing the best I can in that situation, it doesn't really matter whom it is. I just want whatever we're doing to feel good, to go smoothly, to get a few laughs and chuckles out of it, hopefully. Uh, and then listen back and go, oh yeah, I can hear that vibe we had. That's cool. Awesome. Sounds happy. I'm like, yeah, doesn't sound all dirty, right? And you can, those are the emotional aspects of what we do, I think, in a way. And so I always try to keep that up because, well, we've all been in sessions where they drag down. And you're oh, like, man. oh, man, this is bad. That's usually when you just have to take a break, go eat, come back, yeah. you know, and then just regroup and redress, you know, readdress what you were doing. But, um, but hopefully we just stay in the moment. Um, my clients are usually incredibly grateful because they've met somebody who can do it all. You know, I can put up the mics, I can record them. I can put, I can overdub all the instruments onto their, their music. And then they hear the finished product right away. They're hearing like pretty much close to final mixes. They're like, wow, when did you do this? I'm like, I did it over the weekend. It only took a few hours. They're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, 
this is this is what I learned how to do. They're like, this is amazing. And then, of course, word of mouth. You know, there's other singer songwriters that need that sort of treatment. And the one I'm working with right now, um, Carol Elliott, is an artist that was originally, I think she's originally from Georgia, but she lived in Nashville for 30 years, like all through the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. So she met like Gillian, Gillian Welts when she first arrived. She met mm-hmm. Alison Krauss when she first arrives in Nashville. I'm like, you met all these people? She gave me some of her records and like Pat Flynn is on there. Uh, uh, Manny Pacosa like like mixed a bunch of her stuff like you know these great big mixers and she's so she'd work with some big heavyweights in Nashville and she was great and it was just you know another friend who was uh, he's a contractor that I work with he was working on her house and she was like man I wish I could find somebody to help me record my music he's like I know just the guy (laughs) and there it is so we've been sharing stories because we're about the same age and it's been such a delight and she's so appreciative that's the other thing i love about our job is that if you really can come through for somebody it means the world to them they just can't believe they found somebody who they can trust with their music and and i would never do anything that would you know take away from the overall feeling of what they're trying to do i'm not trying to hijack the thing and move it (laughs) in some weird direction i'm literally just listening and going well i'm gonna have an acoustic guitar and a bass and then what's the third instrument you know, is it 12 yeah. string? Is it, is it accordion? Is it is it some kind of melodica that plays that melody? I wonder. I don't know. We'll see. And then, you know, we get back together. We we trade ideas back and forth. Very quickly, we get to the the best version of that song. Yeah. So that's, again, production work is, is a lot of fun. And you and I have worked with a bunch of great different producers. Salim is a great producer. Right? Yeah. And so um, in those moments, those are learning moments, those are teachable moments. So I've always got my eyes and ears open to all those things. And I've always tried to remain uh, humble in those moments. There's no reason for me to go, wow, and so-and-so's record, I did this. <laughs> like, yeah. No, no, there's just going, oh, okay, you want this. Okay, cool. Oh, all right. That's actually the opposite of what I'm doing. Hold on. Dun-dun-dun. Step yeah. on some pedals, uh, mute some strings, do something different. All of a sudden, we're on a different path. And since suddenly something opens up on the path and you're like, they were right. Listen, this is going to leave room for something else. And, and all of that stuff is just discovery, right? It's just um, learning as you go. And, and again, I just think of being at the very edge of what we know is kind of the best place, right? I think uh, when you're playing uh, Frisbee golf (laughs) (laughs) and you get a, you get a hole in one, you're just like, yes. But there were so many times you were close and didn't make it. You were so many times you were way off and you're like, uh, that doesn't seem to stop anyone. Right. And, and so there is this sort of force, I think, in all of us that want things, you know, to go a certain way. Right. We, we want to steer them. And yet there's some places where we have no control. <laughs> and so yeah. I love those places. I think it's good to have a healthy balance of things that we, you know, kind of know the wheelhouse of and then to step into something that you absolutely have no idea what's happening and and you're trying to 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 you know um digest it and figure it out it's it's so much fun um i know that those of us who know you and work with you we we always really appreciate the light-hearted fun generous um attitude that you bring into every session and every gig but i wonder because i know you're a really sensitive guy and i know that there's a lot, you know, sort of behind the scenes and in your brain and in your heart that goes on. I wonder when you're struggling. Oh yeah. 
with the internally generated obstacles when when you run up against those you know what have you figured out i mean in addition you talked about becoming sober um i know i imagine that's part of it but that is yeah um well in the 2000s i finally start you know getting some therapy for for basically just depression and uh anxiety all the things that i was sort of born with i was like a really sensitive kid my brother was like kind of the more outgoing gregarious kid right the normal kid and then i was this really shy <laughs> sensitive kid and that just makes everything kind of feel deeper which would be a good thing when it came to art right yeah but when it came to you know um bullies in school uh mean teachers there was still a lot of racism going on in the 60s <laughs> when i was in school in 70s um there was a little bit of that but then my mom passed away real suddenly when I was 13. And that was, uh, it was almost impossible to get past that. It was like, oh, so the most important, beautiful thing in your life can just disappear. Oh, mm. no. And so you have the existential crisis, I think, that most people have around our age then. <laughs> so you're, but you're not capable. Like your your brain isn't even fully formed to to deal with something like that, right? So, you, so guitar, obviously, you know, became this place I could go. It was like a retreat away from that, from from the everyday world, to a place of pretty much pure fantasy. You know, imagining I was a beetle, imagining I was away from all these things. And so, when I got older, uh, it was. I remember what happened. I was already in therapy, and it was. Eh, it was. <laughs> I was trying all these different medications, eh. and I was staying with a friend. It was during South by. It was like 2012 or something like that. And uh, she worked for ACL, so she had a bunch of work to do. She was already gone. And I got up, made some coffee, and I was kind of hanging out with her cats. And she had The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle sitting on her desk. And I'd mm-hmm. never read any of that stuff before, but I saw it. And I was like, eh. And I start leafing through it, and I you know, get through the first chapter. And I'm like, oh. And I keep reading, right? I'm just basically nonstop reading this book till she gets back. And she got back, <laughs> and she looked at me, and she went, you look different. <laughs> and I'm holding the book and she's like, oh, let's go to lunch. And then we talked about that book and what it helped, how it helped her and how it was helping me right then, which is mindfulness would just mean there really isn't anything that exists in the future or, or the past. All we really have is now. And Buddhist you know, philosophy basically follows that same tenet. So there I could find some freedom. And then I understood why when I'm in the, you know, the ecstatic moment of like playing guitar or you know performing and singing and playing um that's where i felt in the moment you know right right everything feels like right now as, as you're singing and so i thought oh, okay well i'm already sort of practicing this i just need to be willfully practicing it all the time and that's basically what saved me yeah, it was it was it was quite the epiphany like I, I remember driving home that day and everything was lighter like i was like oh wow what what just happened <laughs> like and so yeah and since then it's still up and down it, it doesn't stop but at least you know kind of some place to go ground yourself and feel your feet touch the ground again and go oh no all my limbs work i'm, I'm good I, yeah. like, there's nothing to panic about um and i still you know get panic attacks from time to time but but it doesn't you know but again i think if we didn't have these tendencies, maybe we wouldn't be as good as at our jobs. Maybe we wouldn't get as, be as good as writers or bandmates or um, podcasters. Or, <laughs> I don't or know about that. Or parents or anything like that. And I think, okay, well, this is a chance really for, for me to to do more good. That That's all it was. Um, you know, I'd ask my dad, 
because uh, he got Alzheimer's and then he was, you know, um, hospitalized for a few years. So I left a guitar in his room. And towards the end, like a lot of times, you wouldn't recognize even me or my brother unless I played my guitar. He would wow. Be like, hey, what's up? You know, the way it enters our, <sighs> our brain. So I would ask him every time I've, I visited him, you know, we'd be hanging out. And I'm like, so, hey, remind me, what's the key to a good life? And he'd be like, doing for others. I'm like, all right, good. <laughs> Thanks. I'll see you later. And I would take my guitar and would just go down the hall and play for the rest of the patients. I would just go, uh -huh. hey, here's some Johnny Cash. I learned a bunch of old <laughs> country stuff because they, they love that stuff. And uh, we get down in the nurse's station. They're like, you're still here? I'm like, yeah, I was playing for the other patients. And they're like, why? And I looked at him like, that's my job. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, oh, that's sweet. I'm like, yeah, it's fun. I like it. Go back, put my guitar. My dad would already be asleep. Put it back in his room and go home. But but again, I, I think about the gift we were given, right? This thing that allowed us to do any of this stuff at all. And it feels like that's what we should be doing. Like doing for someone else the thing that we like to do. But in that, some connection is made. Yeah. And that's what makes me happy is, is the idea that, hey, man, I, I love playing guitar, but it's no good if I'm just sitting in my <laughs> this little room all the time, I got to go out and share it with people and hopefully they'll share something with me. And that's exactly what happens. I would hear great stories from those patients because suddenly the, the music would sort of revive some memory. Oh, I remember dancing at Fisher Hall. And so you're like, yeah, <laughs> that, that sort of thing. Yeah. And then the deep music connection is, is real. I mean, I didn't stop John Bryan, but I came pretty close to, 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 wanting, to wanting to be him. Like he, when he appears on the scene, uh, it's the first Amy Mann solo record I hear really that that he's done, and that's like '93 or something, '92, '93. And I'm floored. I can't believe anybody likes the Beatles this much and can play all the instruments like them. I'm like, who is this? Yeah. So we met several times at Largo. We had some nice chats and. I gave him one of those Lauren Reyes CDs <laughs> and he looked at me like, Oh, you're one of those guys. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, a little bit. But on the day of 9-11, right? Like I was out there for the awards, right? And so the day, you know, Serge calls my hotel room at seven in the morning, goes, Hey man, something's going on in New York, man. There's like a plane that crashed. I'm like, what? So the rest of the day is just nuts, right? You were there. The whole country's just, I don't know, just all thrown off. And so the next day, uh, Serge is out there with his whole family. And we have a van that we rent it. They want to go to Universal Studios the next day. <laughs> I'm like, um, I could drop you guys off. And then I'd really like to just spend the day by myself and just do my LA things. And they were cool. They were like, oh, okay. And so that's, I ran into John. I was down in Santa Monica at some guitar shop. And I look over, I'm like, hey, what's up? He's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, at the Latin Grammys, he's like, oh, dude, I'm sorry. Like, he knew the name. Yeah. And I will never forget, he gave me his card, and he wrote his number on there. And he's like, hey, man, if you're still in town Friday, I'll get you into Largo. I'm like, oh, man, thank you. And we got to jam a little bit. And it was such a nice little surprise. Out of all that chaos, to run into him that day was kind of interesting to me. Did he pull you up on stage? No, no. Uh -oh. No, I wish. That um, would have been good. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. But, but he's made so many cool recordings. All the soundtrack work he's done is beautiful. And yeah. And, and, and yet, you know, again, these guys, um, it's really hard to maintain a good mental health when, when you're, when you're in this world, it's, it's difficult. So I think again, all of us strain to, 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 to stay upright and, and do the right thing at every turn. 
but it is it is difficult yeah we're dealing with the unknown all the time so um so this is so great i i I love your perspective on all this and and i love your attitude when you approach it and i feel like your the level of gratitude that you bring to it is so great and i wonder and i think that you will be good at answering this particular question because you do have a lot of students a lot of young people too I wonder if you were to encounter a 21-year-old version of Joe Reyes in today's world, what advice would you give your younger self? Oh, today's world, right? Because yeah. music is so devalued now, right? I I might tell the 21-year-old me now to get into, um, I don't know, um, something that would actually make some money or something. No, <laughs> I, t- I take it back. I take it back. I would just simply tell my 21-year-old self, to be ready for, for all these pitfalls that are going to happen, but to stay the course and, and basically just stay true to whom you were, which is, I'm just kind of nice overall. I don't mean to be, but I just don't like, uh, uh, well, for example, we were in Portland on tour and a friend of ours did our star charts, right? Me, Odie, Eric. And she looks at mine, it's this giant ream of computer paper. And I'm like, so what's it say? And she's going, well, it really just says, you like people around you to feel comfortable. Like, oh, okay, good. That's <laughs> in a nutshell. That is exactly what I want. And so I would tell my 21 year old self to just stick with that, stick with your horoscope, which is like, try to make these people around you not uncomfortable. And that's what I want. I don't want my students to feel like that. I don't want my clients or my bandmates or the stage manager or the, the head, the house mixer. I don't want any of those guys to be looking at me like, Hey man, what are you doing? Quit making all that noise. I'm trying to like, you know, whatever the stage. <laughs> so I don't want to be that guy. So yeah, so I guess I guess I would just tell my 21 year old, you know, to to not give myself such a hard time either. I, I think I was really sort of hard on myself when I was younger, about what I didn't know yet, about how little money I was making probably and how unpopular my band was. or something. Oh. And it's fine. I mean, but, but you have to do these things to get to grow. So I would just say, Nah, you're fine. Like, keep going. When you get to 40, dude, it's going to open up. You'll see. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I would tell my 20-year-old, 21-year-old self. I was like, dude, wait till 40. It's going to be great. You're going to start meeting all these great people, and you'll have the skill set you need to, to do what you want and help them. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Fail fast. Fail fast. Yeah, it's, it's been my credo forever. And I remember, you know, when I was in the decade plan of, of UTSA, you know, being able to go to my professors during their office hours and have real conversations with them like this about like why we chose this path. Yeah. And I was like, well, why did you choose to be a professor? Who, why? Like, what happened? And they would tell me some origin stories similar to mine, which is like, I just, I, I started reading Darwin or whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. they just, they went into the world that they wanted to go into. And they were scholarly, smart people. And I just thought, why are they confiding in me? I'm just this, you know, a long haired student. Like, <laughs> dressed like an idiot in the 90s uh, but it was but it was cool i finished in 92 so so i was i started in 81 finished in 92 that's a long time to be in college right and on yeah. and off on tour you know for some of that but it really made my dad happy he, it really made him sleep better at night knowing you know if all else failed i could get a job teaching someplace and, and be fine but i knew in my mind i'm like well i did learn a lot it was fun and i met some great friends and i'm still friends with some of my professors and classmates but it was just simply filling in some more information we needed to make art is really 
what it felt like in the end. And you're a big reader, and and again, and you've written yeah. books. You've written, <laughs> written books. So it's it's that thing. It, there's something there's something in us that that has to come out, and it's either in the written word or in the music. So we're very lucky. I love it. Well, Joe, I just I love playing music with you, and I love talking with you and spending time with you. And absolutely. I, I appreciate you being willing to sit down and, and talk about all this stuff. Thank you this so is, much. This is an honor. What are you talking about, man? Your podcast is great. I've really enjoyed the episodes I've listened to. And oh. like I said, it's my pleasure to talk with you anytime. I'm glad that we were able to schedule this because when we see each other, usually when we're performing, it's just like, hey, hugs and then <laughs> yeah. off to work. So this is nice. It's been great to catch up and, and to see you. And I guess I'll see you in a few weeks, actually. I'll see you in um Yeah. Okay. No, we're we're gonna rock together again. Congratulations on your th- on the on this anniversary. This is amazing. Thirty years, yeah. Thanks, man. Congrats on the new old Buttercup record. Excited Thank to hear. You. Yeah, yeah. Grand Marie's coming out uh, this spring, so I'm excited about that. We just uh, shot some photos, like I said, and nice. uh, mastered and ready to go. So we've got the art. Yeah, I'm excited about that one too. But thank All you, right. my my friend. Thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely, man. I will talk to you soon. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Osiris. Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born, to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song.